to episode 55 of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five-O podcast. I am your sexy and vexy host, Kristen Haas, aka Kiki Rides. This season five fun continues with two more episodes, episode seven, Chain of Events, and episode eight, Journey Out of Limbo. I am happy to report that as of this recording, fall has finally arrived to my cornfield, so I actually have the windows mostly shut. So you will notice there is slightly less background noise than usual. Enjoy. And before I forget, actually I did forget, I had to put this in later, trigger warning for animal death for Journey Out of Limbo, both watching it and in the episode discussion, I will be talking about it. So gird your loins accordingly. Anyway, let's go to Hawaii. Jacob Kalama, Department of Health, State of Hawaii. Why us, Dano? Why not HPD homicide? Yeah, this doesn't shape up as an ordinary murder, Steve. No way. How come? We ran a background check on Kalema. Married man, two kids, led a quiet life. His hobby was gardening. No debts, no gambling, no trouble. Apparently a pleasant guy. Everybody liked him. Friends, neighbors, minister. And we know that robbery wasn't a motive. Somebody went through his things. No prince, but Kalema's. And his money was left in the car. So we figured the murder had to be uh, linked in some way to his line of work, which was what? He had a specialty, Steve. He tracked down venereal disease. Season 5, Episode 7, Chain of Events. Air date October 24th, 1972. Directed by Ron Winston. This is his third of four episodes. And written by Jerome Coopersmith. This is his twelfth of 32 episodes. Department of Public Health worker Jacob Kalima meets with Linda Rynak and gives her a card, telling her to go to a certain address to find out about something for sure. He then asks if there was anyone else besides Walter. She reluctantly names James Trevor Warren, who happens to be running for Senate. Kalima calls Warren at his campaign headquarters and arranges a meeting at a secluded place at 5.30 p.m., Kalima waits in the designated spot as a station wagon pulls up beside him. He rolls down his window, only to be shot by an unseen assailant. Danny and Ben arrive on the scene where a uniform informs him of what he found. There's no ID on the body, but there's some stuff in the car. There are also tire tracks that Danny orders a mold for. At 5-0 headquarters, they ID the dead man as Kalima. Given that Kalima was squeaky clean and not robbed, it looks like this murder is tied to his work. His specialty? Tracking down STDs. At the Department of Health, Steve and Danny check out Kalima's office with his boss. His boss isn't sure who he was talking to because that's the investigator's day, one contact leading to another. The coded blood test results give them a name, and that name gives them more names, and they track them down to let them know to get tested and treated. 5-0 is going to have to be careful about approaching these people. They're not criminals. At home, Warren sees the Kalima murder in the paper before canoodling with his wife, Paula. They've apparently been separated, and they're on the mend. I doubt murder and syphilis will help, but het marriages are strange, so... Danny and Ben talks to the first couple of people on Kalima's chain of events. Boardman leads to Sophie, who leads to Walter Kleiman. Walter gives Steve and Chin Linda Reinach's name. They talk to her mother at home because Linda wasn't at school. Mrs. Reinach says Linda got a call last night and said she had to meet someone. That's why she left early that morning. They get a picture of her and put out an APB. And they find her! Unfortunately, she's dead. Mr. Reinach identifies his daughter's body in the morgue, and Steve informs him that she was shot. They think she was killed by someone she knew, but Daddy Reinach is sure it was some doped-up hippie. Steve still wants a list of her friends. Reinach knows that Steve knows something and demands to know what that something is. He does not take the news of her STD well. Don't ask questions you don't want answers to, my guy. Steve and Chin question Walter at 5-0. Walter swears he didn't call Linda or meet with her. They ask if he was angry about her infecting him, but he says it was the other way around. He infected her. He had to have because she was a good girl. He really cared for her. He wanted to marry her. Warren tells his wife that she needs to get tested for the SIF, and Paula reacts by packing to leave him for good. 
He swears that she is the only one he loves, but she isn't buying that, and frankly, neither am I. Dude sleeps with high schoolers. Trash. Jay has the results of the bullets and the tire impressions from both murders. The tires are pretty general, except for one distinguishing mark. Good luck to Danny and Duke, who have to check every single tire of everyone associated with Linda. Meanwhile, Daddy Reinach and his buddy Frank offer Walter a ride to school. He just wants to talk. He wants the truth about what happened to his daughter. The talk lands Walter in the hospital. He won't make a complaint against Daddy Reinach, but he does tell Steve that Linda was always sneaking off to do things without her father's knowledge, like working for the committee. What committee? Let's talk to James Trevor Warren's campaign about that. Steve and Danny talk to Marty, Warren's campaign manager, Billy Grunwald, the head for the Youth for Warren Committee, and Jean Holland, Warren's secretary. Linda was supposed to be working with them at 8 that morning, but she never showed. Their alibis established, Steve talks to Warren, who informs Steve of his whereabouts. He was with his wife. The group also denies being in contact with Jacob Kalima, but they are aware that Kalima and Linda's deaths may be connected, and that could look bad for the campaign. Steve says that it's standard procedure to stay mum. However, Warren's campaign goes into crisis mode. Warren lied about where he was that morning. He left at 7.30 that morning to go have an hour by himself at the beach. Getting Paula to lie that he was at home with her won't be easy, since she left him again. Meanwhile, the Ryanaks find Linda's scrapbook, which is filled with hard eyes over Warren, and Daddy Ryanak decides to pay him a visit. I was actually going to sing a song about having the clap, but that would be incredibly juvenile and also inaccurate because we're not talking about gonorrhea in this episode. We're talking about syphilis. So this is actually an episode that I have not seen prior to the podcast, and I will tell you why. I watched Hawaii Five-O in syndication in reruns on a, a local channel. And in addition to not showing the later seasons, I don't think they showed much past season 10 because it was much later before I saw the later seasons. But for whatever reason, this channel did not show this episode. It skipped it every time it was supposed to come up in the rotation. Now, there was a couple other episodes in later seasons that I kept missing when they showed them. So I've only seen them like once or twice. But this one, they completely skipped every single time. And I am guessing it has to do with the subject matter. Because STIs or STDs, they keep calling them venereal diseases, are not things you talk about, I guess. There is still a certain amount of taboo attached to them. And we certainly don't go broadcasting episodes about them. But this was a pretty progressive episode. It's almost PSA-like because we have a very detailed explanation of how the testing works. In that people go to the doctor, they get a blood test, says, I regret to inform you, you have the SIF. They send a coded card to the Department of Health. Department of Public Health gets the results. They call in and get the name, and then they start searching for the connections of who might have been infected. So they start with this one person, ask who their contacts have been, let them know how to get this treated, and continue down the line until they can get everybody contacted and everybody in for testing and treatment. And they make it very clear, this is up to you. You can either get treated, have a few, I think, penicillin shots, and be done with it, or uh, you can just go blind, have body parts drop off, and die. It's totally up to you. The way, though, that this is presented, it's presented very matter-of-factly. He also, the it's Kalima's boss who's explaining how all of this works, makes a point of this is all very secret, because particularly back in the 70s, there was a lot of stigma attached to having a sexually transmitted disease. So keeping it on the down low was pretty important. And Kalima's boss made the emphasis to Steve and Danny that when you're talking to these people... One word of caution, gentlemen. These people are not criminals. You can't flash a badge and expect them to talk about something this personal. We take a different approach. No moral blame, plus our word that no one outside of this office will ever know their identity. You mean everybody talks to you? Well, as a rule, about 95% once they understand the choice. And the choice is that they can be completely cured and in confidence, or they can be left alone and end up blind, crippled, dead. 
So the chain of events in the title of this episode actually applies to two things. So it goes for the chain of the events of that is what Kalima is following. He's following that chain of who touched who. But also the chain of events of who contacted who kind of sets off this chain of events of murder. When we start off the episode, it's we're actually like five, six, seven minutes in before we realize what Jacob Kalima has, was talking to Linda Reinack about. Because you just see them, he gives her a card, says here, go get tested for sure. So you know for sure, did you have any other contacts? And she names James Trevor Warren, who is a politician running for Senate. And it's interesting because like when you're first seeing it, it's like, okay, so maybe this is a pregnancy thing that she's in trouble with. But it's not until Kalima is killed. He's gunned down in the parking lot. And it looks very much so like Warren could have done it because he gets the call from Kalima, agrees to meet him at 530 in this parking lot. We see Kalima waiting and somebody rolls up in a station wagon and shoots him. So it could very much be Warren. And so it's not until... Danny gets the ID on Kalima that we find out that he works for the Department of Public Health and he specializes in tracking down sexually transmitted diseases. So hell yeah, that is a huge reason to keep this man quiet. Especially when we see the next scene when Warren sees in the paper the next morning that Kalima has been murdered and then we meet his wife Paula and through their conversation discover that they have been separated. So Paula likely does not know that he's been sleeping with his 18-year-old high school committee members. Such a politician trash move. And they're only recently getting back together. So they're in very they're in a very fragile relationship state. Plus, this is a politician. Back in the day, that kind of scandal could have ended his career. Now, it probably wouldn't even make the top 10 of news items that day. So we have 5 following the same chain that Jacob Kalima was following. So they can try to figure out who was the last person that saw him and who might have had reason to kill him. And they talk to this guy named Boardman first, who is married. Of course he is. And his wife was, I guess, on vacation. She was elsewhere when he decided to sleep with a woman named Sophie. And he has no trouble giving that name to, to 5 so long as his name stays anonymous because he doesn't want his wife to find out because, you know, he wants to be a piece of shit, but he still wants someone else to wash his underwear. Anyway, they go talk to Sophie, who is a clothing designer, it looks like, and she seems really fine. Poor man. But I can't tell you anything about that. He was fine when I saw him yesterday. What time was that? I think it was around 10.30. We talked here for a couple of minutes. I uh, know all the questions by now, so it didn't take too long. You know what I mean? Who was he going to see next? Do you know? No, I don't. He asked for the names of my recent contacts, and I gave him Walter's name. Walter Kleiman. Where does he live? I wish I knew. He's a student at Oahu Junior College. He used to work in our shipping room part-time. Look, I don't go around cruising universities looking for college boys. I needed some help moving furniture into my new apartment. And, uh, there we were. Well, you know. Well, it, I guess, turned into a porno. And they ended up banging. So they go talk to Walter and Walter gives them Linda's name. And Walter, by the way, is played by Dirk Benedict. So we obviously, everything that happens, we know that Walter's innocent because, I mean, it's Dirk Benedict. Look at that face. You, no, not guilty. Anyway, Walter leads them to Linda, but Linda can't be found. She didn't go to school that morning. So they go talk to her mother and her mother is immediately suspicious that something is going on. But Steve does not want to tip anything off because I cannot imagine that an 18-year-old high school student's mother in 1972 is going to be thrilled to find out that A, her daughter is not a virgin, and B, also has an STD on top of that. So they're trying to keep mom, and the fact that they can't find Linda is kind of concerning. They put out an APB. They get a picture from Linda's mother, and Linda's mother gets this picture from Linda's room. It is not like a picture of her with like some friends or anything. It is like a high school senior portrait in a frame in her room. Why? 
I'm pretty vain, but even I don't have that. I think they should have just put that in the living room or something. Putting it in her room was was a really weird set choice. But maybe in 1972, the high school seniors had their senior portraits in their room. Maybe that was a thing. Anyway, they put out the APB on Linda, and they unfortunately find her dead. She is shot with the same gun as Jacob Kalima, and they find similar tire tracks at her murder site as they found at Jacob Kalima's murder site. Now, here's the thing. Che Fong is... He is the most amazing forensics person ever, and we are lucky to have him because he looks at these tire prints and says, hey, they're they're a match, but they're pretty general except for this one scar. And that leads poor Danny and Duke to go look at the tires of every person who's ever been associated with Linda Reinach. Just blessings to you. That is a lot of legwork. But I think it's also a good illustration of how tedious and involved police work could be particularly back in the day when you had to do a lot of legwork, you're supposed to do a lot of legwork. There's a lot involved when you're investigating crimes. After Linda dies, it really kind of does look like Warren is cleaning up his mess because Jacob Kalima was the one who contacted him. And when he contacted Warren, he made a point of saying that he got his name from Linda Reinach. So it looks like Warren is very much so cleaning up his mess. Now, after they find Linda dead, Daddy Reinach goes in to ID her body, and he asks what happened to her, and Steve, of course, informs him that she was murdered. They think it might be someone she knew because she got a phone call the night before, and that's why she left for school so early, she had to meet someone. Daddy Reinach lives in the land of parental delusion. He can't believe anybody she knew would do anything like that to her. It had to have been some doped up hippie because, of course, we're still blaming hippies for shit in 1972. And then he presses Steve on what he does know. And Steve has to say, well, your daughter was sick. She had an STD. She had the syphilis. We've confirmed that with the autopsy. And Daddy Reinach like loses his mind. There's no way his little girl could be dirty like that. Because again, land of parental delusion. Everybody thinks their children are perfect little angels. And as someone's child, I can tell you, we're not. With this knowledge, Daddy Reinach decides to go off the rails and he finds Walter because he knows Walter. Walter is one of her friends. He knows that they were together. So he goes and finds Walter. And Walter is walking to school. So Daddy Reinach and his friend Frank pull over and offer Walter a ride to school. And I don't know what Walter is learning in school, but apparently it's not a lot. Because one look at this situation, would I would walk to school. I would actually like flee to school instead of getting in the car with them. But Walter is a sweet, sweet guy because he's Dirk Benedict and has an angel face. And he gets in the car and very quickly realizes that Daddy Reinach blames him for Linda's death. That he thinks that Walter gave her the syphilis, which Walter maintains he believes he did. Because, as he says, Linda is a very good girl. She doesn't go around with a lot of guys. She's very sweet. He was very sweet on her. He wanted to marry her. So, she, of course, he had to have been the one to infect her. And Daddy Reinach is sure that Walter killed her because she told Jacob Kalima about it. And Walter says, no, it was the other way around. He gave Kalima Linda's name. There's no such thing as keeping her quiet because he was the one who blabbed. Daddy Reinach is beyond logic. And what ends up happening is that Walter gets the absolute crap kicked out of him in Daddy Reinach's pursuit of learning the truth. And he ends up in the hospital. And I don't know what the, what the makeup choices were here. Like, I don't quite understand the makeup decision, because it's obvious that Walter is um, a little bit swollen. It looks like they've put something in Dirk Benedict's like cheeks to make him look a little puffy, like he's swollen. And he has some marks on his face, but his face is pretty much all, like the entirety of it, of a subtle shade of purple. He looks like he's he chewed that gum from Willy Wonka and he's fixing to go blueberry. He, it's just a it's just a very odd choice, especially since like neither one of his eyes are like swollen shut or heavily bruised or anything. Because I mean, I know they're trying to convey that he was beaten badly, but in reality, he just kind of looks hunky. He refuses to, to fill out a complaint against Daddy Reinach because he says he can't blame him for what he did. I could. 
but apparently Walter is very angelic. But he does turn them on to James Trevor Warren and his campaign because he says Daddy Reinach didn't know everything that Linda was doing because she had to sneak around a lot, probably because she wouldn't be able to get permission. Five-O goes to talk to the Warren campaign, and you have Marty, the campaign manager, who's very much so a campaign manager. This is his gig. This is his job, his paycheck. This is what he does. But he's not invested in the individual candidate outside of the candidate winning. All he wants to do is run a good, successful campaign. That is like it. Then you have Billy Grunwald, who is the head for the youth of the Warren Committee, and he's one of those young, idealistic men. He is involved in this campaign because he believes in James, James Trevor Warren. And then you have Jean Holland, who is his secretary, so not she knows everything. I mean, that's what secretaries are for. And Steve talks to this group, establishes their whereabouts, their alibis, and Marty makes a point of saying when Steve asks where they were eight o'clock, he's like, oh, is that the time of death? I mean, he he is in the know because he is he's not going to be caught off guard. He, he He's good at what he does. Finally, after, because we see a speech, James Trevor Warren's making this speech and he talks to a couple of student reporters after the speech. And once he's done with that, he comes over to 5 he comes over and Steve asks him where he, he was. And he says, oh, I was with my wife that morning. And he's the one that makes a point of saying, we all know who Jacob Kalima is, but we didn't talk to him. He lies and says that he didn't talk to him when Gene knows definitely that he talked to him because Gene took the phone call. And he knows that Kalima and Linda's murders could be connected and that could be bad for the campaign. He would really appreciate if Steve could keep as much of this out of the press as possible. And Steve says that's procedure. This isn't a special favor. And I kind of liked that slap in the face. I thought he deserved that slap in the face. So then he informs, after Steve leaves, he informs his campaign that, oh, hey, by the by, um, I lied I was not with my wife at 8 o'clock that morning. I was at the beach trying to clear my head. I was there for about an hour. Marty is just on the ball. Oh, that's fine. We'll just get Paula to lie for you. And he's like, well, kind of hard to do that because Paula left me again. Paula left him because he at least was man enough to go to her and say, hey, by the way, um, you might want to get tested for syphilis. Because I was 100% unfaithful to you during our separation and ended up banging some 18-year-old high school student. And for whatever reason, Paula doesn't take this very well, and so she decides to leave him for good. Despite the many pleas of Warren, I mean, his arguments were, you know, you're the only one I ever loved. It's almost sincere, but the delivery is just trash. And I wouldn't have stayed with him either, Paula. Just flee. Flee. The man is trash. It's one thing to have your husband say, by the way, I cheated on you while we were separated. It's another to say, yeah, it was with an 18-year-old high school student. Mm -hmm. No, there's no going back from that. Live your best life, Paula. Live your best life. So if Warren doesn't have enough trouble going for him with 5 sniffing around, him lying about his alibi and knowing who Jacob Kalima, which he does not tell that to his campaign team... But lying about his alibi and lying about Jacob Kalima, Daddy Reinach comes home from work after a day of beating teenagers, I suppose, and finds his wife on the couch. And he's like, oh, are you feeling bad again? What did you take? And she says, tranquilizers. And I'm like, yes, because this really was the good old days. And yeah, handled any sort of traumatic life event, either by shoving your feelings all the way down and completely ignoring them, acting with complete unhinged rage, or drugging yourself up to oblivion but she said she found something in linda's room in her scrapbook and for him to go look at it and when he does we see pages and pages of linda reinach and james trevor warren in this scrapbook pasted together their pictures together and it's like look at the way we're looking at each other this is when we when i knew that you felt the same way about me too and so it kind of comes back to Walter saying that he really cared for Linda and wanted to marry her. And Linda clearly did not feel the same way because she was way hung up on Warren. Well, with this knowledge, Daddy Reinach goes to see James Trevor Warren. And this time he brings a gun. Unfortunately for him, his confrontation is cut short because Fibo bursts in. They have been looking for him since he beat the crap out of Walter. And they find out that he's gone to see James Trevor Ward, and they burst in just in time before things get super serious. 
And he had brought the scrapbook with him and it was on the floor. And so they take him out for the best because men will go on unhinged vengeance tours rather than get grief counseling. And Steve sees the scrapbook and looks through it and he goes, okay, yes, you and I are going to have a talk, Mr. Warren. They take Warren to Five O headquarters and Gene sees them leave together. So Gene knows. And Warren sees the scrapbook and realizes that Linda felt strongly for him, but he did not reciprocate those feelings because he truly, truly loves his wife who has left him again, which comes up to be a point against him when Steve is rehashing the evidence of these murders against him because he has no alibi for the time of either murder. He says that he was supposed to meet with Kalima because he does come clean about that. And they had arranged to meet at 5.30 because he was going to be in court until 5. But he says that Kalima called back and left a message for him in court saying that he wasn't going to be able to make it. It was canceled, so he went home. And then, of course, he has the beach story for Linda's murder. But they have traced the tires on the cars to a fleet of vehicles leased to James Trevor Warren for the campaign. So he would have access to that car and wouldn't have to sign in and out like the other volunteers, the campaign staffers would. So he could take it at any time. He is still at this point claiming that for Linda's murder, he was with his wife. But he says that it's going to be difficult for her to verify that because his wife has left him again and he doesn't know where she is. How convenient. They ask if he has a twenty-two caliber gun, which he does, but he says it's missing. Steve says, well, it's very convenient for you to go looking for your gun to know that your gun is missing. And he said, well, my wife left me. I was concerned because she's had an incident previously with sleeping pills. So I looked for the gun to make sure she wasn't going to do something unhealthy towards herself. And Steve finds this all very, very convenient that, that both the wife, his alibi and the gun, which would be able to clear him if the ballistics didn't match, are missing. So the ultimate goal is to find Paula. Unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, the campaign team finds Paula first. They find her on the mainland. I think she's in San Francisco. And Billy and Marty are both on the phone with her, trying to get her to come back and give Warren his alibi. And Paula won't do it. I gave him everything I had. My help. My love. He gave me syphilis. She says she's not going to lie. That, and hangs up. Good on you, Paula. Get your shots and live your best life. So the campaign team kind of falls apart. Billy is now completely disillusioned because he truly believed in James Trevor Warren. And he bails. He's just absolutely heartbroken over this. Marty, as he tells Gene, he's like, a jockey never quits. They just find another horse. And that's basically how he is. He's like, this campaign's dead in the water. They're, this guy's not going to win. I'm going to go find me one that will. And he leaves. In the end, it's only Gene who's really committed to James Trevor Warren. You know what I'm committed to? This guest cast. Let's take a closer look at them. James Trevor Warren was played by Lyndon Childs. He has 152 credits going back to 1960 on IMDb. He played Congressman Charles Hansen on East Side West Side, Paul Hunter on James at 16, and Brian Helmsley on Texas. 
He also appeared in episodes of Rawhide, The Twilight Zone, Gunsmoke, The Many Loves of Dobie Gillis, My Favorite Martian, The Munsters, The Man from Uncle, Perry Mason, 12 O'Clock High, Time Tunnel, The Green Hornet, The Fugitive, The Virginian, Mannix, The Invaders, Land of the Giants, Lancer, Ironside, Medical Center, Banachek, The Rockford Files, Harry O, Cannon, Switch, The Six Million Dollar Man, The Bionic Woman, Streets of San Francisco, Charlie's Angels, Dallas, Barnaby Jones, Chips, Buck Rogers, Flo, Nero Wolf, The Incredible Hulk, Quincy M.E., Knight Rider, Hardcastle and McCormick, Dynasty, Falcon Crest, Scarecrow and Mrs. King, Benson, The A-Team, Matlock, Werewolf, Our House, Simon and Simon, Santa Barbara, Beverly Hills, 90210, Baywatch, Golden Girls, Picket Fences, Fly Away Home, Silk Stockings, Jag, and Frasier. He appeared in the movies Road to Paloma, Dr. Mabuse, The Mystic Tales of Nicholas Winter, Old Friends, The Annihilation of Fish, The Forbidden Dance, Girl Talk, Forbidden World, Eye of the Cat, and Incident at Phantom Hill. He appeared in the TV movies Lost Flight, Hitchhike, Panic on the 522, Who is the Black Dahlia, Act of Violence, and Abandoned and Deceived. And he appeared in the miniseries Till We Meet Again and Helter Skelter. Mr. Reinach was played by Lou Frizzle. This is his first of two episodes. He was Mitch on Chopper 1 and Nat Dearborn on Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. He also appeared in episodes of East Side, West Side with Lyndon Childs, Daniel Boone, High Chaparral, Night Gallery, Bonanza, Banachek, The Partridge Family, The FBI, Marcus Welby, MD, Cannon, The Secrets of Isis, Harry O, Police Story, the Streets of San Francisco, Lucan, Barnaby Jones, Lou Grant, The Waltons, Alice, and Fantasy Island. He appeared in the movies Capricorn 1, The Front Page, Our Time, Rage, Mickey and Boggs, and Halls of Anger. He appeared in the TV movies Duel, Runaway, Letters from Three Lovers, Ruby and Oswald, and Devil Dog and the Hound of Hell. And he appeared in the miniseries Centennial and Roots the Next Generation. Jean Holland was played by Mary Fran. She's probably best known as Joanna Loudon on Newhart. She was also Amanda Howard on Days of Our Lives. And she appeared in episodes of Get Smart, That Girl, The Wild Wild West, Bonanza, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, Search, Canon, The FBI, Apple's Way, Quincy Emmy, Fantasy Island, The Incredible Hulk, The Rockford Files, Nero Wolf, WKRP in Cincinnati, Hotel, The Hitchhiker, Burke's Law, The 94 Version, Lois and Clark, and Diagnosis Murder. She appeared in the movie Nashville Rebel. She appeared in the TV movies Portrait of an Escort, Single Women, Married Men, I'm Dangerous Tonight, Gidget's Summer Reunion, and Eight is Enough, a Family Reunion. And she appeared in the miniseries Lucky Chances. As I said, Walter Kleiman was played by Dirk Benedict. He's probably best known as Face on the A-Team, or Starbuck on Battlestar Galactica. He was also Officer Gil Foley on Chopper 1 with Lou Frizzle. He also appeared in episodes of Charlie's Angels, Galactica 1980, The Love Boat, Hotel, Baywatch, The Commish, Walker, Texas Ranger, and Murder, She Wrote. He appeared in the movies Charlie's Christmas Wish, Space Ninjas, The A-Team, Waking Up Horton, Alaska, Demon Keeper, Blue Tornado, Body Slam, ruckus and when he turned into a snake magnificent and he appeared in the tv movies journey from darkness the georgia peaches scruples trench coat in paradise abduction of innocence and earthstorm which was a fabulous sci-fi channel movie just glorious billy grunwald was played by ray buktinka this is his first of two episodes he was chad connors on cutters Dave Hayes on Open House, Dr. Norman Solomon on House Calls, and Benny Goodwin on Rhoda. He also appeared in episodes of The Partridge Family, Police Woman, Eight is Enough, Fantasy Island, The Love Boat, Hardcastle, and McCormick, Simon and Simon, The 1980s Twilight Zone, Valerie, Magnum P.I., Murder, She Wrote, Empty Nest, Head of the Class, Designing Women, Booker, Matlock, Who's the Boss, The Father Dowling Mysteries, The Mommies, Diagnosis Murder, L.A. Law, NYPD Blue, Sybil, Lois and Clark, Touched by an Angel, Star Trek, DS9, and Jag. 
He appeared in the movies Shop Girl, Heat, My Girl, and Imps. And he appeared in the TV movies A Circle of Children, The Adventures of Nellie Bly, Walter, For Love or Money, The Art of Being Nick, The George McKenna Story, Police Story, Gladiator's School, McShane, Winner Takes All, Surviving Gilligan's Island, and Return to the Batcave. Paula was played by Judy Meredith. This is her second of two episodes. We also saw her in 3,000 Crooked Miles to Honolulu. Linda was played by Gay Nelson. She was Kathy on Ozzy's Curls. She also appeared in episodes of Nanny and the Professor, The Partridge Family, The Waltons, Dirty Sally, Sarah Family, A Man Called Sloan, and Little House on the Prairie. She appeared in the movie Witch's Brew, and she appeared in the TV movie Baby of the Bride. Marty was played by Jay Stewart. He was the announcer on The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet, and Jimmy Durante presents the Lemon Sisters. He also has an uncredited role as the announcer in Rock and Roll High School. Sophie was played by Ellen Blake. She was Natalie DeRoy on Hill Street Blues, Elizabeth Brand on L.A. Law, and Consuela on Cyphers. She also appeared in episodes of Night Gallery, The Paul Lynn Show, Gunsmoke, The Waltons, Soap, Knott's Landing, Chips, Lou Grant, The Bay City Blues, Sledgehammer, Picket Fences, and Law and & Order. She appeared in the movies Silver Skies, Suspect Zero, Blind Horizon, Wyatt Earp, The Last Starfighter, The Bean, and Coffee. And she appeared in the TV movies Intimate Strangers, Terror Out of the Sky, The Jordan Chance, Two of a Kind, and To My Daughter. Mrs. Reinach was played by Electra Galus. This is her second of seven episodes. We also saw her in The Grandstand Play Part 1. Brant, Kalima's boss, was played by Robert Gleason. This is his fourth of five episodes. Boardman was played by Robert Withens. This is his sixth of ten episodes. And Jacob Kalima was played by William Valentine. This is his second of seven episodes. We also saw him in Cloth of Gold. And that is Chain of Events. I really kind of enjoy this episode. I find it very fascinating that they did an episode on this particular subject matter since STDs were pretty taboo at the time. This predates the TV movie Someone I Touched, which had uh, STDs as a central theme by like three years. This is obviously 1972. That movie, that TV movie didn't come out until 1975. So I find it quite interesting that they actually did this and went this route and did it in such a way that they were not condemning anyone for getting an STD. Now, do I believe the men in this episode should have been condemned for being cheating pieces of shit? Absolutely. But they kind of even refrained from judgment a little bit on that. But as for the actual procedural part of the episode, watching 5-0 chase down the evidence and track their own chain of events, it's pretty entertaining. Plus, you have the added benefit of Daddy Ryanak just going full tilt bozo and being completely unhinged and unreasonable just kind of gives an added tension factor. When Walter gets in the car with him, you honestly think Walter's going to end up dead. So... All around, it's a really good episode, and the ending really isn't that surprising if you're paying attention. You should give this one a watch. What do you want to say a thing like that for? Commotio cerebri. In layman's terms, a brain concussion. What caused it, Doc? Blow? Or fall? Can't say. Nor can Danny. Why not? He can't remember. His brain's been bruised. He can't remember, but, but he will remember eventually, won't he? This kind of amnesia is common among athletes, Steve, particularly football players. Sometimes they have flashes of recollection, but sometimes they don't. Episode 8, Journey Out of Limbo. Air date October 31st, 1972. Happy Halloween. Directed by Michael O'Hurley, this is his 20th of 36 episodes, and written by Frank Telford, this is his first of six episodes. A dump truck is causing a scenic traffic jam on its way to a construction site. It dumps its load of sand and out tumbles a body. The workers frantically dig the body out. Oh no, it's Danny! 
As Danny is rushed to the hospital, Steve gets a briefing from the governor about China's Secretary of Commerce Lin Mai Lu's visit to see private civilian Mr. Hummel, an old friend who he might just talk U.S.-China trade relations with, but if he doesn't, nobody loses. Ben calls the governor's office to inform Steve about Danny. Steve races to the hospital, arriving just as they get Danny out of the ambulance. He tries to talk to Dano, but he's pretty unconscious. Doc examines Danny, and we're just going to ignore the fact that he's usually a medical examiner because that implies uncomfortable things. A nurse brings Danny's clothes to Steve, who passes them off to Ben to take to Che for the full forensic treatment. Chin Ho brings in the truck driver, whom they know has a rap sheet. They know from the loader that Danny wasn't in the truck when the sand was loaded, and the driver says he only stopped for traffic signals once he got to town. So Danny either climbed or was tossed into that truck. Doc says Danny has a brain concussion, either from a blow or a fall. Danny can't say because he can't remember. It's a common side effect from the injury, often seen in athletes. Sometimes they remember, sometimes they don't. Steve visits Danny in his room. Danny is unnerved by waking up in a strange place with no memory of how he got there. Danny remembers that it's his day off. He got up early, got dressed to go out, and that's it. He can't even remember why he was going out. Steve tries to press Danny, but it only upsets him. Steve and Ben check in with Che. He found horse dander on Danny's jeans, so he was riding a horse prior to his incident. He could have been thrown. While Ben goes to check riding academies, Chin tells Steve the truck driver is clean. Che then tells Steve that from the burrs on Danny's shirt and shoes that he was riding through high brush. He also found horse blood on Danny's jeans. Steve and Duke meet with Mr. Hummel about Lin Mai Lu's visit. Steve asks they keep Lin Mai Lu's visit to Mr. Hummel's residence as much as possible. A boat ride, and that's it. It'll make security easier. Inside the house, Ben calls in, saying he found Danny's car at a riding place. Steve tells Ben to take Danny out there to see if it'll spur any memories. Danny and Ben look around the riding academy. Nothing comes back to Dano. The owner of the stable, Cal, remembers Danny, though. He took out one of the mares. Cal doesn't believe that Danny was thrown because the mare would have come home. They don't even know where to look for the mare, but Ben suspects it has to be somewhere near the highway. He tells Danny to take the map home and study it since he's on sick leave. Danny tries to protest, but a truck backfiring sends him ducking for cover. His body remembers something, even if his mind doesn't. Steve and the governor meet Lin Mai Lu at the airport and escort him to Mr. Hummel's house. There's a contingent of press waiting there. Danny watches the conference from the comfort of his couch. The two men speak Chinese to each other, apparently sharing an inside joke. Danny turns off the TV, the antenna sparking a flash of memory. Another flash sends him back to the map that Ben had given him. There's something about a compass. He immediately calls in. Danny heads out to the road where he saw the compass rose. There he remembers riding and spotting some men taking some boxes into a bunker. The men shot at him and then chased him in a jeep as he rode away. Steve Chen and Ben meet with Danny at the bunker. He can't remember what the men who chased him looked like, but he remembered seeing a boat in the bunker. The bunker, though, is empty. They follow the route that Danny say he rode when he was being chased. They find horse and jeep tracks. Further down the trail, they find a scrap of Danny's shirt and blood from the horse. The trail leads them up higher, Danny probably trying to avoid the jeep where they find the poor horse dead. Chin also finds a casing. They were still following Danny and still shooting. They go up further to an area of ridge and a cliff. Danny would have been trapped. So he jumped for the sand truck to escape, hitting his head when he landed. Now they know what happened, but who did it and why? Meanwhile, Mr. Hummel has some memories of his own in his son's room, and judging from the music, I'd say his visit with Lin Mai Lu might not be as friendly as thought. I have to believe that there were some almighty gasps back when this episode first aired in 1972, when they dumped the sand out of that truck and dig the body out and flop it over to reveal that it's Danny. There had to have been people gasping at that reveal. I have no idea if the TV guy gave it away or not, but I just prefer to think that some people went in blind and were just clutching pearls at the sight of their beloved Dano, unconscious in a pile of sand. Don't ruin it for me. So this episode is kind of interesting because it deals with the memories of two men, in a way. 
and that Danny can't remember anything that happened after he got up that morning. And then later we find out that Mr. Hummel has memories that he can't forget. And these two things end up colliding in a rather explosive fashion. So we start this episode with this dump truck causing a very scenic traffic jam as it lumbers down the road. Because where it's going on the highway, there's a no passing zone. So there's a line of cars stuck behind it. But the view is gorgeous. So, I mean, are you complaining? I wouldn't be. Let me look at that. And it gets to the to, to the construction site, dumps the, the sand, and out comes Danny. Meanwhile, we have Steve meeting with the governor. And when you f- we first have this meeting with the governor going over Lynn Mailu's visit to his friend, Mr. Hummel, at first you're like, maybe this is just they needed Steve to not be there. So this could just be an incidental thing. They needed him to be elsewhere when he got this call about Danny. And he goes rushing to the hospital and he meets the ambulance there. So I don't know what that says about where that construction site was or how good that ambulance service is. But damn, man. And he tries to question Danny when he gets out of the ambulance, when they pull him out of the ambulance. And man, he just he is a little too unconscious to be questioned. So they take him in for examination. And I guess Doc is just the 5-0 medical person, regardless of what the circumstance is, because we normally see Doc in a medical examiner capacity. So you see him examining Danny in a doctor capacity. Now, we've seen him do this before. He did it in 90 Second War. He was helping the ER doc examine Steve. But in this case, he's the only doc examining Danny. So it's a little, we're just going to forget that he's a medical examiner right now. It implies very uncomfortable things. They make a point of saying he has a brain concussion and that he has memory loss, which is common in athletes, particularly football players. That's a real champion thing to have going on for that sport. So back in 1972, we knew what the NFL continues to downplay. Anyway, so Steve goes to talk to Danny because he's fully conscious now. And it's interesting because Danny can't remember anything. He wakes up in the hospital not knowing how he got there. And he's trying to remember. I remember this morning. I got up. I got out of bed. It was early. I got dressed. I got dressed to go out. What? What, Denim? And then I don't know. I don't know. Next thing I know, I'm here. and, And everything in between now and then is blank. But you did say you got dressed. For what, do you remember? Uh, you wore sneakers. Does that suggest anything? Sailing, maybe? Hand, handball? Uh, no. It's no use. Dano, try, try, dredge it up. Steve, I am trying. I'm trying. I'm blank. I can't think. It. My, my whole mind, I, nothing like this has ever happened to me. I don't know. And you would think, considering Steve has gone through this exact same thing before in which he was drugged and was missing a big chunk of his memory, that he might be a little less frustrated and a little more gentle with Danny in the questioning. But no. No. But he does back off immediately when Danny gets upset. And he says, okay, you hang out. I'll be back. So they're trying to figure out how Danny got into this this truck, what he was doing. And of course, they question the truck driver, and the truck driver has a record. And this was also interesting is that he is under suspicion until he is not, because he is an ex-con, and he did time for armed robbery, they said, I think. They talked to him and verify that the loader said that Danny wasn't in the truck when the sand was put in, that this guy did not stop until he got to town when he hit traffic lights. The sides of the truck are nine feet high. He doesn't know how he got in there. He is not cleared officially until... After they talk to his parole officer and the parole officer's like, he is not a problem. He's kept himself clean and employed since leaving prison. And he's still technically not off the hook. Steve just kind of puts him on the back on the back burner after that. But it's like, that's a pretty strong comment on prison rehabilitation. When this guy's record is used against him and he is automatically a suspect. So does not speak highly for the rehabilitation aspect of prison now, does it? Or at least the perception of that, Stephen. Anyway, 
Once again, Che Fong is a magnificent forensics guy, and we are lucky to have him. Horse dander. Horse what? Minute particles from the hair and skin of a horse. Found them on Danny's jeans. In other words, he was riding a horse. Not a horse, a roan. How many teeth did it have? You give him time, he'll give you that too. Dave, he finds burrs and tears in the shirt, so he knows that he was riding through high brush at a pretty good clip. He finds horse blood on Danny's jeans. So, because Steve has to go to the security meeting at Mr. Hummel's house, he sends Ben to go check out riding academies. Danny must have gone horseback riding that morning. Steve and Chin and Duke go to Mr. Hummel's house. So this is clearly going to figure into the plot somehow. We just don't know how yet. But they are discussing the security at the house, saying, keep Lin Mai Lu at the house as much as possible. The boat ride is fine, but nothing else. And Duke makes the offhanded comment of how he was fighting the Chinese in Korea, and now here he is protecting a member of the Chinese government. And Steve says something to the effect of, well, the world keeps turning, brother. It sure does, brother. And it's established that Mr. Hummel and Lin Mai Lu became friendly for reasons while well, they were both over in China for reasons. But during this security thing, Steve gets a phone call from Ben saying he found the writing academy and, and Steve tells him to take Danny out there, see if he remembers anything. Meanwhile, Chin happens to see a picture and comments to Mr. Hummel, I thought you were an army man, not a marine. And he says, I was. This is my son. And the, the look that Chin gives him is kind of odd and the exchange is kind of odd. And you're like, what's the point of this? And you kind of don't get an answer for that until later. Because it's just an odd kind of exchange. But we don't have much time to ponder it because we go out to the Riding Academy with Ben and Danny and meet up with Cal. Because Danny can't remember anything. The Riding Academy brings back nothing. But Cal remembers Danny, the owner of the, of the ranch, and says that he took out one of the mares. Neither one of them came back. And he doesn't think Danny was thrown because if he was, the mare would have come home. And he's been too busy to go out looking for his horse, which I'm like, can you not, like, phone a friend? But he also says he doesn't know where to look. So there is that. So they know Danny was riding. They know the mare didn't come home. They don't know where he was riding. But they know it had to have been in the vicinity of this particular highway. Because how else is he going to get in this sand truck? Ben gives him the map to tell him to take home. And makes a point of saying that Steve says that Danny is on sick leave. So he is not going back to the office. He's going home. And he's wearing his amnesia recovery aloha shirt. So he's dressed for it. And as they're walking back to the car, a truck drives by and backfires and Danny like panics and ducks for cover and looks around like we are going from zero to 100 when it comes to heart rate. And he's just like frantic. And Ben is looking at him like, what is your issue, my guy? And Danny's like, I have no idea. He has no idea why he reacted that way. So his body is remembering, but his brain isn't. So Danny goes home. And he watches this press conference with Mr. Hummel and Lin Mai Lu at his house. Because Steve and the governor have gone to pick him up and escort him. And it seems like the two of them have quite the history. They make a, they, they say something in Chinese. I don't know what dialect of Chinese. I'm not familiar. But they have a brief exchange in Chinese where it seems like they're making a bit of an in-joke that they don't explain. So they seem very friendly. Danny turns off the press conference and the antenna on his TV, because this is back in the long, long ago where our TVs had antennas on them. So you have to adjust them to improve the reception. And sometimes when you were the child, you just stood there and held it because that was the only way to get the show you wanted, the channel that you wanted to come in. And that was your job. The entire reason for your birth was to hold the antenna in the proper position. But anyway. That gives him a flash, and he goes and something else gives him a flash. I can't remember what. He gets a flash of a memory, and he goes and looks at the map, and the compass on the map kind of brings everything together, and he remembers seeing a compass rose, and that is like a big compass on a pole. It's out in the middle of nowhere, but it gives you the direction of where things are, so you know if you're going northeast, south, or west, because it like out in the middle of nowhere, it's easy to get turned around, especially where Danny is seeing this. It's very hilly. There's like just the dirt road. It'd be very easy to get lost. But he remembers it, calls it in and goes out to this place, which is a, there's a bunker there and he's having memories. And the way they did these memories was, I don't know. It just made me think of the flashbacks of the episode where his fiance was killed 
where it's just this weird kind of overlay, like zoom in. I don't know. They found new buttons on the editing board and they used them. And I don't hate that. I love when they do that. Just keyboard smash shit. I don't care. But he has these memories of riding up and seeing these guys in a Jeep unloading boxes and a body into this bunker. And he thinks he sees a boat in this bunker. And then they proceed to chase him down and shoot at him. So he explains all of this to the rest of 5 when they get there. And Jin is a little dubious about the fact that there was a boat in this bunker, particularly because when Ben opens it, there's nothing in there. And Ben is also a little doubtful. And I think Steve is a little doubtful as well. But the only way to prove it is to get evidence. So he says, if that's what you saw, I believe you. Now show me where, how you got away. And when they retrace the route of Danny's escape, they find tire tracks and hoof prints from the Jeep and the horse. So they know they're on the right track. So it's a great kind of scene of them following this track up through this hill because he obviously took the hill to get away from the Jeep. They find a piece of his shirt. They find blood from the horse. And then sadly, they find the horse dead, but not really. Because it's, um, if you watch the episode, okay, so I have a fascination with how they portray dead animals in television shows and movies, because sometimes they will use a live animal and have them lie very still for as long as they can. Oh no, this is a dead animal. My favorite was, there was an episode of Matlock where there was a dog who was mortally wounded, who was supposedly mortally wounded, and the dog is laying there and his tail is wagging because he just, he can't help himself. So it's like that. Or it is a fake animal that is clearly fake. My favorite is in an episode of CSI Miami, they find a dead dog and it's a Dalmatian. And <laughs> what it looks like is they just upholstered a RCA Victor statue. It's just, that's what it looks like. So there's two ways. It's usually pretty obvious. And in this case, it is live horse lying very still. So it's it's not easy to get a horse down and have them lie still. And it's obviously a quick scene because when they show the horse... Obviously, you're focusing on the, because they show the horse in full, and you're focusing on the face of the horse because, oh no, eyeballs are closed, must be dead. And there's also, they put some blood, a little bit of blood on the shoulder of the horse to say, oh no, horsey was shot. But if you look beyond that, you can see the horse's breathing. And it's a very quick shot. And when they show the horse again, it's a close-up of the face, and it's obviously a still shot because they're not going to lay still for very long. But anyway, Flying the Horsey, unfortunately, demised in quotes. And it seems that she ran out, like, as hard as she could. But then Chin also finds a casing that suggests they were still chasing him. They were still shooting at him. And so they follow this trail up further and find that Danny was trapped on a cliff. That they had him pinned and there was no way out. And Danny remembers he jumped for it. He saw the sand truck coming down the highway and he made a jump for it to jump for safety and hit his head when he hit the truck. Holy crap, that's a pretty daring escape because if he misses, he is screwed because it's a decent drop. So either he gets shot by these yahoos that are chasing him or he totally biffs it and he is roadkill. But this is 5-0, so of course he hits the sand and makes a safe landing. But this is his memory. So now we know what happened to Danny. We know that he was chased by these two guys because he found their lair. But they don't know who these guys are or what was going on or why any of this happened. So we get the first hint that this has in some way ties to Hummel and his visit with Lin Mai Lu. Because from there we go to a scene of Hummel in his son's room. And he's having war flashbacks as he's looking at this room that has been preserved. And we kind of get the hint now that, oh, son is dead. And he might be blaming someone for that. So like I said, this is interesting because we have Danny who couldn't remember and we have Hummel who can't forget. So we have an inkling of that Hummel's son's death has to tie in with this somehow. That Hummel and Lin Mai Lu's visit, this all has to tie together somehow. But we just don't know how. Neither does 5-0. They do this really great thing. They get the chalkboard out. And they try to help Danny remember. Steve's like, we have three nouns we're going on. We have the boat, we have the boxes, and we have the body. 
And so he divides it into three columns and he asks Danny, okay, tell me what you know about the boat. And Danny can't really remember specifics until they start saying, well, was it a canoe? Was it a raft? Did it have a cabin? Did it have a sail? And through that, they're able to eliminate certain things. They didn't have a cabin and it was only, it had to have been about eight feet wide. So it narrows things down. They move to the boxes. How big were the boxes? How were the men carrying them? Asking these questions, which narrows everything down. There's a great debate between Chin and Ben about what was in the boxes, what could have been in those boxes. And Ben's first answer is oranges. And Chin's like, that is ridiculous because no one's shooting anybody over oranges. It's probably drugs. And Ben's like, nobody puts drugs in a box that big. But Danny then, because of this back and forth, Danny remembers that one of the boxes said something about dynamite. So there's dynamite in the boxes. They asked about the body. Danny can't give specifics because the body was wrapped in a blanket. So he doesn't know if it was male or female. Doesn't know anything about it. So Duke comes in. Uh, Che had been sent out to go over the bunker because Che is great. And he finds a latent print. And this latent print leads them to a guy by the name of Durko. Harvey Durko. Great name. Harvey Durko got busted for industrial espionage but got off. So Steve sends Ben, Chin, and Duke to go talk to Harvey Durko, to go pick him up. And he makes a point of leaving Danny behind, that Danny is still convalescing. He's still on leave. He is not an active participant in this case. He is a witness. And it's probably for the best in this case because Ben, Chin, and Duke go to get Harvey Durko and a shootout breaks out. And Durko leads them on a chase down the beach. So they miss that there was another gentleman in Durko's house, and he escapes during the ensuing chaos. So this shootout happens. Duke ends up getting hit in the upper shoulder, but he'll be okay because he's Duke. Ben and Chin continue the chase and end up inadvertently killing Harvey Durko. Ben later tells Steve that he was aiming low for his legs, and Durko ducked down just as he shot. So they weren't trying to kill him, but killing him kind of kills their lead. They have nothing else to go on. This is a frustrating development to Steve because he has does not have time to look into it further because he has to go on the boat ride with Hummel and Lin Mai Lu and he leaves Danny behind. For Danny's safety, he leaves him with a uniformed babysitter to make sure that he is, goes to Steve's place and is kept safe. Meanwhile, the other gentleman who was at Durko's house, a man by the name of Stark, who seems to be an explosives expert reports to Hummel at uh, the site of his son's grave to let him know about Durko's demise. But he finished this cigarette case that is wired to ensure that he and Lin Mai Lu will have an explosive boat ride. You know what else is a blast? this guest cast. Let's take a closer look at them. Mr. Hummel was played by Keenan Wynn. He has 283 credits going back to 1942 on IMDb. He was Kodiak on Troubleshooters, Digger Barnes on Dallas, Carl Sarnak on Call to Glory, and Butch on The Last Precinct. He also appeared in episodes of Twilight Zone, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, The Untouchables, Route 66, Finn Casey, The Naked City, Rawhide, 77 Sunset Strip, Burke's Law, Bonanza, Combat, The Wild Wild West, Gomer Pyle, USMC, Then Came Bronson, Alias Smith and Jones, The New Perry Mason, McMillan and Wife, Heck Ramsey, Kolchak the Night Stalker, Emergency, Moving On, The Bob Newhart Show, Beretta, Police Woman, Bionic Woman, Super Train, One Day at a Time, Fantasy Island, The Love Boat, the Greatest American Hero, St. Elsewhere, Taxi, Quincy Emmy, Manimal, Hardcastle McCormick, and Highway to Heaven. He appeared in the movies Black Moon Rising, Best Friends, The Clonus Horror, one of my favorite MST3K episodes, Hard Knocks, Piranha, Orca, two classics, The Killer Inside Me, The Devil's Reign, Snowball Express, The Animals, The War Wagon, Stagecoach, Bikini Beach, The Absent-Minded Professor, Son of Flubber, The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit, and Phone Call from a Stranger. And he appeared in the TV movies, Assault on the Wayne, Terror in the Sky, Hit Lady, Target Risk, Sex and the Married Woman, Mom, the Wolfman and Me, Mirrors, and The Return of the Man from Uncle, The Fifteen Years Later Affair. 
Lin Mai Lu was played by the illustrious Philip Ahn. This is his third of three episodes. We also saw him in Cocoon and Sweet Terror. Durgo was played by Bob Lavari. He appeared in episodes of Tales of Wells Fargo, Sergeant Preston of the Yukon, Sky King, The Restless Gun, The Grey Ghost, Trackdown, and The Lieutenant. And he appeared in the movies Forbidden Island and Wolf Larsen. Stark was played by Clay Tanner. He appeared in episodes of Stony Burke with Jack Lord. The Outer Limits, Perry Mason, Get Smart, McHale's Navy, The Virginian, The Fugitive, The Big Valley, Bonanza, Gunsmoke, Kung Fu, Harry O, Cannon, Starsky and Hutch, and Wildside. He appeared in the movies Final Chapter, Walking Tall, Race with the Devil, How to Frame a Fig, and McHale's Navy Joins the Air Force. He appeared in the TV movies She Lives, Nowhere to Hide, and Big Bob Johnson and His Fantastic Speed Circus, and he appeared in the miniseries, Mr. Horn. Bellick was played by Sam Peters. This is his second of nine episodes. He also appeared in the episode Just Lucky, I guess. And our writer was Frank Telford. In addition to six episodes of Hawaii Five-O, he also has creator and producer credits, as well as writing credits for 32 episodes of The Stranger. And he has Writing credits for five episodes of Gentle Ben, three episodes of The Young Rebels, four episodes of Primus, six episodes of Ironside, two episodes of The Rookies, five episodes of Mannix, two episodes of Joe Forrester, five episodes of Gemini Man, two episodes of The Quest, five episodes of Police Woman, six episodes of Chips, and two episodes of Father Murphy. He also has screenplay credits for Hello Down There and The Bamboo Saucer. And he has writing credits for the TV movies, Police Headquarters, and Writing with Death. And that is Journey Out of Limbo. I really like this episode because I do have a soft spot for my favorites in peril. But also because the way that they work through the episode to try to bring Danny's memory back. And how they follow basically the breadcrumbs as his memory does start to come back is really interesting. I just love the way that Steve is willing to follow the trail to see what they can find. And then how they play the noun adjective game to try to conjure up some memories from Danny. It's just really fascinating. I love the way that it plays out. And we also have this parallel track of Mr. Hummel and his son, and this visit from Lin Mai Lu. And it, you really don't see how all of this ties in together until you're almost at the end. And like I said, the ending is explosive. This is one you should definitely give a watch. <laughs> oh, come on, brother. A hood wouldn't shoot a couple of bucks of oranges. Drugs, maybe. Drugs? Boxes that big? That's dumber than oranges. is episode 55 of Bookham Dano. Two really good episodes. Both of these episodes have Fido following trails of evidence pretty much literally in that they're following breadcrumbs in order to solve these crimes. And I just, I really like the way both of them play out and bo how both of them come together. And I also like it when we come together. Thank you so much for listening. You know, I always appreciate your ears. And your patience as we put up with all of this background noise. If you'd like to find me online, you can do that by going to akakikiwrites.com. It is the home of Bookham Dano. You can also find me at my blog, kikiwritesabout.com. And if you want my memories in real time and you can't find me on the hell site formerly known as Twitter, you can find me on Blue Sky at Kiki Writes. So get tested on a regular basis and don't be afraid to make that big leap. Until next time, aloha. <laughs>